Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This is a podcast extra from Nature. The last episode of the regular Nature podcast marked our 500th since our beginnings way back in 2007. To celebrate our half millennium, we've assembled eight Nature podcast contributors, past and present. Each of them has picked out one piece they worked on that really resonated with them. To start us off, Charlotte Stoddart, the longest-serving member of the podcast team, talks us through one of her very first pieces. The piece I've chosen aired a couple of months after the Nature podcast properly got started, when we were still getting to grips with the format. The Nature podcast and the podcasting industry have come a long way since those early days. But if you forgive the slightly stiff delivery, the content of these early interviews was just as compelling as our current shows. The one I've chosen has particular resonance for me today as I waddle around the office at 34 weeks pregnant. It's about how a woman's posture changes to deal with the extra weight of carrying a baby. Here it is, with introduction by former podcast host Adam Rutherford. For completeness, we've included the embarrassingly dated show music and advert. The Nature Podcast, in association with BioRad. Find your perfect match among the full line of BioRad thermal cyclers, real-time PCR instruments, supporting reagents, and plastics. On the web at biorad.com genomics. This week, microbes that chew up oil reserves but which could play a role in the global energy crisis. You could even be looking at producing a kind of zero carbon emission fuel from oil fields in the form of molecular hydrogen. But that's a few years off, unfortunately. And for the next generation of scientists, we find out what makes a really good science book. Very good because they show you more and it's, um, it attracts kids to actually read them with the help of nine-year-old Alice and her school friends. You're listening to The Nature Podcast, and I'm Adam Rutherford. First this week, alongside the wonder of carrying a child to term, pregnancy can come with a host of physical problems for women. Swollen ankles, frequent trips to the bathroom, and so on. But what about the sheer extra weight of a bump? Charlotte Stoddart finds out how evolution has helped expectant mums to cope. Bipedalism, or walking on two feet rather than four, distinguishes us from other primate species. We already know about the benefits of bipedalism, 
For example, it frees up hands for other tasks. But what about the huge challenge that two-footedness must present in pregnancy? Carrying a baby puts a tremendous strain on the spine. Now, researchers from Harvard University and the University of Texas at Austin have described special features of female anatomy that help mothers to be not to topple over. I spoke to authors Catherine Whitcomb and Dan Lieberman. I started by asking Catherine why bipedalism is a particular challenge for pregnant women. So. As the abdomen accommodates the growth of the baby, um, it becomes larger. And in bipeds, it actually protrudes in front of the hips, in front of the body. And because our base of support, our hips and our two feet, are really quite small in supporting our body, that protruding abdomen destabilizes our posture and locomotion, which is a unique challenge because of our bipedal locomotion and our evolutionary history. What special adaptations have females evolved to cope with this extra weight? Ah, yes. So there really are sort of two components to the story. One is what pregnant human females do when they're pregnant, which is adjust their posture to stand more comfortably and to achieve better balance. And the other component is an evolutionary one, which relates to the skeleton, and those are features of the vertebrae that resist the special loading circumstances that occur during pregnancy. So this curve of the lower back, which is found in both human males and females, the lordosis, is exaggerated in females. There's a wedging of the vertebral bodies, which is actually what accomplishes that curvature when the vertebrae are stacked one on top of the other. There's an additional level of that wedging curvature in females, and there's a certain increase in the relative size of their joints and the orientation of their joints that resists some of the special loading that occurs during pregnancy. So there are indeed specific features of the vertebrae we find in females, not in males. So all these adaptations reinforce the lumbar vertebrae to help females carry the extra load acquired during pregnancy. And how did you investigate these? How did you discover these differences between male and female lumbar anatomy? Mm -hmm. Well, at the lab, we followed 19 women through their pregnancy. And we followed not only the change in their posture and gait during pregnancy, but we also tracked their center of mass. And it's important because it's really the point of the body where gravity pulls, right? But because the baby grows in the abdomen and protrudes forward, their center of mass throughout pregnancy actually shifts forward over three centimeters. And our results demonstrated that what women do when their pregnancy reaches about half of the expected term mass is they shift their posture. So they actually lean backwards or increase their lumbar lordosis. And of course, when they shifted their posture, the load, the compression and the shearing load that their back experienced was heightened. And these vertebral adaptations that we see in female vertebrae are really beneficial in resisting the kinds of loads that occur during pregnancy. And what's new about this finding? Ah, well, this is what's so exciting about our research. We've identified these sex differences in the lumbar vertebrae of humans, 
And these features are entirely absent in chimpanzees. And chimpanzees, of course, are our closest living relative. Um, so there's something unique about humans. Um, and when we look at the fossil record of human ancestors, we also see some evidence for these adaptations in early Australopithecines. And so we're excited because this suggests that this is a very early and basal adaptation in the whole suite of changes that occurred in hominin locomotor evolution. Turning to you then, Dan, Catherine has talked about the three key features of female lumbar vertebrae and she also mentioned that there is fossil evidence that these special adaptations evolved in early Australopithecines. What's so significant about this finding that the anatomical differences between males and females evolved so early on in human evolution? What is more important for natural selection than features that actually affect reproduction itself? Now, nowadays, of course, women don't really have to do that much when they're pregnant. We get our food from supermarkets, we drive around in cars or take public transportation. But a few million years ago, when, when our ancestors were living out there in the savannah trying to survive, those constraints would have been really serious. And so females that were better able to tolerate the load of being pregnant would have been better off. So we've, we've been thinking about the evolution of bipedalism almost entirely in terms of its you know, advantages, you know, why it's good to be bipedal. You can carry things and you can be more efficient energetically. But we haven't really thought about the cost of being bipedal, and one of the biggest ones is on pregnant mothers standing up and supporting their weight. And so this is really what we actually expect selection to have done, to have acted on aspects of anatomy that improved fitness. That piece was by Charlotte Stoddart. Up next, physics reporter Lizzie Gibney talks us through a story from last year which changed the way we think about artificial intelligence. My pick is an epic tale of human versus machine. In January 2016, DeepMind's artificial intelligence called AlphaGo became famous when it beat a top human player at this very tricky game called Go. I wasn't a reporter when Deep Blue beat Garry Kasparov at chess, which was in 1997, but this felt like our modern-day version of that epic standoff. I loved diving into the quirky and very traditional world of Go, something which I knew nothing about, and the story also provided an excuse for me to get another sneak peek inside Deep Mind, a very secretive AI company who are about to become very famous indeed. Computers beat humans at lots of things. Crunching numbers, remembering long lists, tasks that require a lot of processing power or memory, but not a lot of creativity. In looking for bigger challenges, developers of artificial intelligence have often turned to games. Games need long-term planning, predictive power and cunning, in addition to all the processing power that computers have in spades. Chess was perhaps the most famous one to fall. Chess grandmaster Garry Kasparov lost to Deep Blue way back in 1997. David Silver from Google-owned company DeepMind explains. Most board games were actually relatively straightforward for AIs to actually defeat humans because they could basically use brute force search. Brute force search. Basically, combing through all the moves, imagining the game several turns ahead and choosing the best play. So say your AI is playing chess. Black chooses his move and white considers all the possible follow-ups and black considers all the follow-ups to that. It's possible very easily for a computer to select the best possible move. But there's one game that's never succumbed to brute force. The ancient game of Go. The Go board is a large grid on which players take turns to place smooth black and white counters. 
Here's David's colleague and co-founder of DeepMind, Demis Hassabis. There are sort of 10 to the 170 board configurations, more than there are atoms in the universe. People always say, if you ask a good Go player, you know, professional player, why did you play this move? Often they'll tell you, you know, it felt right. And they'll use words like that rather than, you know, calculating it all out like a great chess player might do. Undaunted by the centuries of history and nuance, DeepMind have been developing an AI that can hold its own on a Go board. They're not the only ones. Facebook, too, are working on the problem, and it's preoccupied many AI researchers for decades. In 2014, one Go expert predicted it would be another 10 years until an AI could win against a professional human player. But the new AI, AlphaGo, is a bit precocious. So the main novelty of AlphaGo is that we use deep learning to try and address the enormous search space that we face in the game of Go. Deep learning basically means grasping increasingly abstract concepts by studying lots and lots of data and looking for patterns. In this case, by feeding the computer a bank of images of Go games. It then uses various layers of programming to recognise what's important and what's not. Based on this experience, the AI builds up its own intuition about what moves to play and when. And because AlphaGo has the endless patience of a machine, it was also able to spend lots of time training by playing itself. Finally, AlphaGo sprinkles its newfound intuition onto a traditional brute force search, allowing it to hugely improve its ability to pick the best moves. When it played against other Go programs, it could reliably beat them. At that point, the team was ready for their next challenge. David Silver again. What we really wanted to do was to beat the top humans. My name is Fan Hui. I am three-time champion for a European Go Championship. We played AlphaGo against the European Go champion, Fan Hui. It's me, yes. <laughs> According to our own metrics, we believed that AlphaGo was stronger than Fan Hui. However, it's very hard to ground our internal evaluation, which was based on computer program playing against computer program, against the strengths of real human players. The two sides decided to play five games over a few days at DeepMind's headquarters in London. David Silver still gets nervous just thinking about the first game. The atmosphere was very tense. Fan Hui was concentrating extremely hard. Uh, the room itself was quiet. We didn't want to distract Fan Hui. The first game I play with AlphaGo, I just want to play simple and easy because I think, OK, he will be strong, but uh, maybe I'm, I think I will be better. I think it's just for the end game, I, I, I make some mistake and I lose the game. Everyone in DeepMind was crowded into a room, brimming with excitement, watching every single move be played up on the board, discussing it, watching AlphaGo's internal evaluation go up and up and up as it starts to believe it was winning. First game, computer one, human nil. And the second game, I changed my strategy. Fan Hui decides to change strategy. He said he'd played too calmly and now he was going to start fighting. So we were even more worried going into the second day. We thought, right, now, now he's really understood where, where our weaknesses are, uh, what will happen. He tried very hard to start enormous fights, played very aggressively against um, AlphaGo, and yet we were able to win every single game, five games to zero. It's uh, very hard, very hard for me, but it's a reality. The problem is human. Sometimes we will do very big mistake because if we have a human. But for computer, never this problem. Others in the world of Go are impressed by AlphaGo's achievement, but they stress they were kind of expecting it. Here's Toby Manning from the British Go Association. I think that people will say 
I was expecting at some stage some software to um, uh, reach this sort of standard, but I didn't think it would happen for another 10 years. We can no longer describe it as the game that computers can't play, but that's um, not, I don't think, going to affect how individual people see the, uh, see the game. AlphaGo is already in training for its next big match against a player considered by many to be the best in the world, Lee Sedol of South Korea. As for the world outside games, Demis Hassabis sees plenty of applications for AlphaGo's intelligent algorithms. One of the areas we're certainly very interested in is to help healthcare, maybe in the field of diagnostics. So in diagnostics, you need to be able to recognise things. Um, Maybe uh, it's a medical image or something like that. And then we have to make some kind of long-term plan or decision about the kind of treatment um, that might be appropriate. Um, We haven't tried it on any of these things yet, but these are the kinds of um, areas we would love to, to help with. Thankfully, Fan Huey hasn't lost his Go confidence to a machine. In fact, he thinks players might learn a thing or two from AlphaGo. I think maybe one day we need more about how we can play better with this game. So I think it's a, it's a very, very good thing for the Go community. That was physics reporter and regular Nature podcast contributor Lizzie Gibney. Many of you will be familiar with the voice of Jeff Marsh, who has contributed to the Nature podcast for many years now. He picked out a story from 2015 that has a very personal significance. I'm really fond of this package for a number of reasons. Firstly, it was just a really neat bit of science how this molecule, lanosterol, managed to untangle modelled proteins that you find in cataracts. Also, um, the story actually came a few weeks after my own grandmother had told me about how she'd just been for this cataracts operation and how traumatised she'd been by it. So it was really nice to kind of hear from the horse's mouth, as it were, how much this finding could potentially affect people's lives. And finally, it was just really touching to hear my grand's very gracious philosophy about science and how science works at the end of the package. Cataracts cause over half of all cases of blindness across the globe. There's like a mist over your eye, so you're not clearly seeing things. That's my granny, 93 and going strong. And whilst never one to complain, she did recently develop a cataract. I didn't know I had a cataract till I went for an eye test. I was having to get stronger glasses, and she said, you've got cataracts. For people like Granny Marsh, who are usually in their old age, there's only one treatment for this cloudy vision. You have to have surgery to cut out the misty lens. What they do is give you an injection in the eye and look into it with all sorts of, you know, spyglass things, and and you get all sorts of visions going on in your eye and lights flashing and doing all sorts. And then they lift off this film, I presume. I don't quite know what a cataract is myself. Well, she's not so hot on the details, but then she is in her 90s. What the surgeon actually did was remove the lens and replace it with a plastic version. It's not a major operation, but there can be complications just like any surgery. And you only get the surgery in a developed nation with access to this treatment. Millions don't. So maybe there's an easier way. Enter Kang Zhang from the University of California, San Diego. He's been thinking, wouldn't it be great if we could replace the surgical knife with something that could just dissolve the cloudy stuff, like an eye drop? Well, we'll get to that punchline soon enough. But before you can cure a cloudy lens, you've got to understand what makes a healthy one see-through. Here's Kang Zhang to explain. The lens proteins are large 
protein complexes, and those are arranged in a very orderly structure such that the light can come through straight. Obviously, if you have any changes of this highly ordered lens protein structures, you're going to have cloudy lens, therefore cataract. Kang, as well as being a researcher, is also a physician, and recently two young children walked into his clinic with congenital cataracts. Being a geneticist, Kang dived straight into sequencing their genomes and found a mutation blocking the making of a molecule called lanesterol. Before this study, Kang says there was very little known about the role lanesterol plays in the eye. In a new paper, he and his team took cells in a dish and tweaked them so that they couldn't produce lanesterol. In these cells, the lens proteins became misfolded and formed aggregates, just like in cataracts. And conversely, by reintroducing lanesterol or lanesterol synthesis into the cells, we show that uh, in the cell cultural models, there are dramatic dissolution of misfolded lens proteins. So our study is the first one to show that uh, lanesterol and uh, their related compound may be a new class of drugs that is involving dissolving protein aggregations and then treating misfolded protein complexes, restoring uh, lens clarity and and, uh, preventing cataract formation. And they didn't just stop at cell cultures. Kang and his team wondered what would happen if they gave old dogs eye drops with lanesterol in them. Pooches, like us, are susceptible to cataracts. In addition, we also take um, dogs with a, a senile or age-related cataract and uh, treat them with lanesterol. Uh, what was shown that uh, in those cases, uh, there were also increased clarity and the reduction of cataracts in those dogs. So how long will our grandparents have to wait before cataracts can be cured with eye drops? Kang thinks not too long. Well, since the lanesterol is a molecule that is produced by ourselves, by our own body, the toxicity issue of a drug is going to be minimum, if any. So I would anticipate that we will be going to clinical trials for treating human cataracts within next year. And there's one more radical claim for lanesterol. Because it works by sorting out disordered clumps of proteins, I wondered if it might be used to treat other disorders where protein aggregates cause issues. We think so, and uh, we are now doing experiments and try to demonstrate or test whether they're going to be effective for dissolving aggregations such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. For some people, though, lanesterol will hit the market a fraction too late. I told Granny Marsh about the new results. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I wish I'd known about it, put it that way, yes. But, you know, this is progress, isn't it? I think science is is a very wonderful, slow progress because they have to be absolutely sure. That was a report from Jeff Marsh. Now, though, we are joined by a podcast host who has been here since the very beginning. Kerry Smith left the Nature podcast a few months ago, but she didn't go far as she's still at Nature now editing features. I feel safe saying that no one has appeared on more nature podcasts than Kerry, and here she recalls one of the most dramatic events she reported on. You might be expecting me to pick an early story from the mists of podcast history, but it's kind of embarrassing listening back to those first shows. I sound very polite. 
I've also met some amazing people making the podcast, but I haven't even chosen one of them, the refugee scientist, for example, who escaped Syria for a new life in Belgium, or the woman who lost her sight as a child and uses echolocation to get around. She featured in the first episode of our Sound Science series in 2015. I've chosen what's probably one of the biggest scientific scandals we've covered at Nature in recent years. It's a story about how science is done, and then the need to redo it, and in this case the terrible consequences of that, a discredited young female researcher and a suicide. We couldn't have known all that when in 2014, to great fanfare, Nature published two papers claiming to have found a new type of stem cell. Here's the package reporting that finding in January 2014. A little citric acid can do some amazing things. It can zing up your salad dressing. It can remove lime scale from your shower. And it's the key ingredient in a new recipe for stem cells. Stem cells, of course, can turn into any other cell type in the body. They're pluripotent. The stem cell family album is looking increasingly crowded. There are naturally occurring stem cells. Then, in 2006, Shinya Yamanaka discovered a way to make them by reprogramming specialised body cells back to a pluripotent state. And now there's another way of taking cells and making them blank slates. A team based at the Riken Centre for Developmental Biology in Kobe, Japan, made the discovery and announced it in two papers this week. The procedure is surprisingly simple, as our reporter David Sironoski found out when he went to Riken to chat to researcher Haruko Obokata. He first asked about her inspiration for the project, which it turned out was a plant, to be precise, a carrot. In the plant, like a carrot, they can produce stem cells from totally differentiated cells when they are exposed to strong external stresses, like dissection. I instinctively felt that we may have similar mechanism to the plant. So slicing a carrot produces yeah. a callus, which mm-hmm. is full of, of stem cells. Yeah. And you thought that uh, mammals and humans have the, are going to share this kind of uh, regenerative capacity with carrots. Were you cooking when you came up with this idea? Were you slicing carrots? <laughs> no, no. That idea came up when I was soaking in the bathtub. I see, OK. Inspiration strikes in some inconvenient places. What Obakata realised was that she might be able to create stem cells through physically altering their environment. She tried lots of things. I tried everything I could think of. For instance, squeezing cells through a pipette, starving cells, and so on. In the end, what worked was acid. Low pH solutions made the cells shrink and then revert back to a stem cell state. The team called the cells STAP cells for stimulus-triggered acquisition of pluripotency. Austin Smith, who directs the Wellcome Trust MRC Stem Cell Institute in Cambridge in the UK, is intrigued by the result, since acidic treatment would usually be the death of cells. I mean, it's just not an obvious thing to do to drop cells in acid, and it's still kind of amazing to me that something productive came out of that. But Obakata and her team were tenacious. They first worked with cells in a dish, proving that they expressed the same genes as other pluripotent cells. Then they went further, making mice from stap cells. Still, it took a lot to persuade people, Obakata told our reporter David. It's an extraordinary and surprising finding. Was it difficult to convince people that you had actually achieved this? Yeah, because I was so naive. I didn't understand why no one believed me. 
In addition, I didn't know what kind of data could convince people. Therefore, I just tried to collect the data which never can be created by other cells. And it took almost five years from their first experiment. Never accuse a scientist of being impatient. But just what is a low pH, of about 5.7 by the way, doing to cells? Austin Smith again. It appears that what happens here is that you completely erase everything in the cell. And then instead of killing itself, this pluripotent or indeed a a more than pluripotent state self-organises. How can something be more than pluripotent? It's because two types of cells make up an embryo, embryonic stem cells for the body itself and a group of extra embryonic cells for the placenta. It's very rare that other stem cells can make both these types, but STAP cells can, which suggests they're more flexible even than other stem cells. Plenty of questions remain. You know, I think in my mind, you know, the big question now is, well, is this something particular to using newborn mice? Will it be extendable to fully differentiated adult cell types? And and will it work in other species? But, you know, those are exactly the questions people had after the original uh, Yamanaka paper. And do you think in your lab you'll be dropping some cells into vinegar anytime soon? (laughs) Well, yeah. Uh, like, yeah, as I say, it's very fascinating and it, is, it touches on questions that we've been interested in for a long time. So, you know, of course, we're very interested in this uh, approach. And, uh, yeah, I think we may, we may look at it and compare it with some of the, uh, you know, with how, how this emergence of potency occurs in the embryo and during uh, Yamanaka reprogramming. I think these are very interesting questions. That was Austin Smith, and before him, David Cyrinowski was speaking to Haruko Obakata. I won't play the whole of the next package, but it was made pretty quickly after that first one, in July 2014. Nobody could replicate Obakata's findings. She was forced to try to reproduce them herself in a lab with 24-hour video surveillance. Back in January, we reported on a new, strikingly simple method for making stem cells. Cells could be made pluripotent just by subjecting them to a little bit of stress, squeezing them or putting them in weak acid. That was according to results from a team at Riken in Japan and published in Nature. And it was the beginning of a saga. Errors were soon found in the papers. Figures looked like they'd been manipulated. Passages of text were copied from other articles. And more seriously, the results just couldn't be replicated. This week, Nature has retracted both papers. In the wake of this news, Nature reporter David Cyrinowski has joined me on the line to pick over what happened and what went wrong. David, back in February, almost as soon as the papers were published, there were rumblings that something was wrong. In April, um, Obakata was accused of misconduct and Riken began an investigation. And what's been happening since then? We've only, but we're only a few months further down the line. There have been a couple, couple major things. One is that there have been genetic tests done on some of the cell lines that were purported to be STAP cell lines. They were purported to be made using this new technology. And the genetic tests seem to show that they are not what they were supposed to be. In fact, they're, they're not even from the same strain of mice that was used in the tests. Uh, These still have to be confirmed, but this would be very strong evidence that something was, from the beginning, very wrong with these experiments. By August of that same year, a senior colleague of Obakata's at the same institute had killed himself. 
Obakata herself was hospitalised and their institute was carefully monitored and its budget was slashed. Science rarely goes this tragically wrong. The most recent investigation into the papers concluded that the results were caused by contamination but stopped short of blaming one scientist. And researchers, however cautiously, are still studying how and why cells become pluripotent. Because in this case, the errors were found. And in that sense, the scientific process has worked. Thank you, Kerry. Noah Baker is another stalwart of the Nature podcast. Noah's been a prolific contributor to both the Nature podcast and to Nature Video. Although he hasn't appeared on the podcast for the last few months, this piece demonstrates just what we've been missing in his absence. I have a lot of fond memories of podcast pieces that I've recorded over the years, but one which really stands out for me was from a show in the summer of 2015, and it was all about how science is taught in schools. Now, science education is a topic which is really quite close to my heart, and I've made a few packages about it, But I think this one in particular stands out because it involved some really amazing kids from a primary school in southwest England. I remember I was on holiday at the time when I recorded it, but I took a few hours out from my vacation to visit the school with my audio recorder in hand. And as so often I have been in the past, I was really blown away by the enthusiasm, the originality and the ingenuity of the group of 10-year-olds that I interviewed. Not to mention, I was really amused and I laughed a lot. They were hilarious. I think that it was just a really enjoyable package for me to make, but also it was about a wider topic, science education, which I genuinely believe is really important to keep thinking about and to keep exploring. This is the sound of Class 5 at Blackhorton Primary School in Devon, England, just before lunchtime. The hubbub is typical, but the school isn't quite. When it comes to science, they believe that lessons should be directed by the students, not by the teachers. Here's Tom Pether, the head of school at Blackhorton. Children have got enough questions and enough ideas of their own that actually us teachers just need to feed off what they're bringing to the classroom rather than us actually tell them what to think. I met a few of the students, all aged between 10 and 11. I'm Louis. I'm Emily. I'm Rory. I'm Florence. I'm Bo. I asked them to think of any question they wanted to know answers to. They had a lot. Why is light so fast? Are there any other colours other than the ones we know about? Why do people have different colour hair? And Why do people care about fashion? It's rubbish. Why does gravity pull us down to earth? How did we learn to speak without communicating? It wasn't just questions either. There were discussions and theories too. Why are the leaves on a tree green in spring but brown in um, in autumn? They're green because they're growing and then they're brown because the, the sun isn't there anymore. Um, the sugars are in the leaves and then the sun coming down onto the sugars makes them this brilliant green colour and then... Um, Actually, not all trees are green. Yeah, I know. There's red ones, so there must be different chemicals in each Each tree, tree, because each tree must take up different... And then they started to work out how to test their theories. Experiment! Test! I just said thank you very much. Put... Keep one tree in the shade and keep another tree in... in, in, in In the sunlight. sunlight. And see what happens. The more they discussed, the more ideas came out. Snippets of knowledge and experience mixed with 10-year-old logic to come to some answers. For example, after some deliberation, the group came to a consensus on what they thought all the dimensions were. Further 
first dimension. First dimension doesn't exist. Second dimension doesn't exist. Third dimension is everything. Fourth dimension is black hole. And fifth dimension is the universe. universe. That's what I think. Many of their assertions I knew to be incorrect, but to the teachers of Black Autumn, that's not the point. It's not saying, no, you're wrong, that's rubbish, go back and sit down, because that's going to switch off a lot of scientists and a lot of learners. So it's always just saying, oh, that's interesting, and, and running with what the children think, because, I mean, I think the first thing you need to think in the classroom is that I don't have all the answers, I've got a few, but the children maybe don't have all the answers either, but together we can work out a way of trying to have come to some sort of answer. Black Autumn isn't alone in its thinking. In 2006, an education initiative started in Germany called the Little Scientists' House Foundation, or Haus der Kleinenforscher in German. Here's Michel Fritz, the chairman of the foundation. The founders sat together and not just asked themselves why. They thought about what could be done to improve education in Germany. And their answer was, we start, we have to start earlier. Children... uh, are born scientists. The curiosity of uh, uh, little children has no limits. And the House der Kleinen Fossil Foundation supports not exactly the children, but supports the pedagogical staff and teachers to promote that spirit of the children. Through workshops and activity packs, the Little Scientist House Foundation teaches teachers new ways to approach their lessons. Teachers all over the world are taught to give answers and not taught to uh, teach um, thinking about answers and not taught to uh, go with the questions of the, with the children's questions. And that's our most important challenge. That's what we have to do to give them the motivation and to encourage them to, uh, to go with the children. Since its beginnings, the initiative has become the largest of its kind in Germany and has spread all over the world as far as Thailand and Australia. But why push for this kind of learning? I spoke to Michael Rice from the Institute of Education in London. A lot of governments around the world are concerned about how their country does in tests. Now, the danger for that for science is that we end up with a lot of young people getting a more fact-based approach to learning science when they're in primary schools. And while some children like that, a lot of children end up losing some of that wonderful enthusiasm for science that is frankly endemic among five to ten-year-olds. Initiatives like the Little Scientist House aim to supplement this fact-based learning with free thinking. While Michael agreed with the basis of this initiative, he did warn against going too far. If you just concentrate on how science is done, after a while, actually this becomes less interesting for students and their own knowledge doesn't advance as much. So in a way, I for myself probably wouldn't want entirely to go overboard on the idea that you can never be wrong, but I do like the very supportive atmosphere that these sort of programmes have. Working out the balance is always tricky, for teachers more than anyone. Here's Tom Pether again from Black Horton School. When you first start on teaching, it is quite a risk and it's quite a leap in the dark. I think you need to work in an environment where it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to try things and it's okay to take risks. And that's exactly what we want our children to do. So if we're modelling it as teachers, if we can be big enough to say, actually, that didn't work, I made a mistake there, let's try it this way instead. And that's the way science works, really, as well. So, I mean, if we can do that as teachers, then then we're modelling that for for the children.
In the meantime, like thousands of others around the world, the students of Black Horton will keep on questioning. Does space go on forever? I think yes. Not yes. because I think the whole of space, I don't know why it would stop. It's got uh, This is the question that like, messes my brain up because like, I hit the world and then there's this whole thing and I just want to find out everything. I want to just build a spaceship when I'm older. That can just fly around and go into space for ages. And see if it's already invented a space holiday, so you're probably going to get one by your when you're older. A space holiday? No, I would never want to go into space holiday. That was a report from Noah Baker. Fans of all things nature multimedia will have noticed that in recent months, Sharmini Bandel, who has directed and narrated many films for Nature Video, has started to co-host the Nature podcast more regularly. And so, naturally, we wanted to hear what her favourite piece has been. I found it pretty easy to pick my favourite podcast piece I've made. There have been some fun ones. There's prehistoric slugs. One time I got to wander around the Natural History Museum's dinosaur galleries talking about taxonomy. But my favourite package ever is this one because it features an adorable toddler trying not to eat a biscuit and my friend Phil complaining about his PhD. For the record, Phil has yet to finish his PhD. The human brain isn't really wired to think about the future. We put things off till tomorrow. We cross that bridge when we come to it. I wanted to investigate the cognitive biases that affect how we think about our own future lives. But first, let's explore the not-too-distant future with Kirsten and her son Tobias. Listen, I want to explain something, right? Yeah. I'm going to take one biscuit and leave it here with you. And if you want to, you can eat the biscuit. Okay, but, but, if you leave the biscuit and don't eat it while I get ready, then when I come back, then I'll give you another one and then you'll have two biscuits. Okay! As humans, we live for the moment. Let's start, okay. So you can decide. I'm going to go away and wash my face and get ready, okay? It's sometimes hard to focus beyond the here and now especially when there's a delicious biscuit in front of you. Mummy! Yeah? Did you like to give me another biscuit? Did you decide to eat your biscuit, did you? Yes. Oh, well, we were only going to have another one if you ate it. But that's okay. No, you didn't. You ate it. But that's fine. You were allowed to choose and you chose to eat it first. Tobias is nearly three, and much as he wanted a second biscuit, he couldn't help eating the first one right then. You might have seen videos of this kind of experiment online. Search for marshmallow tests, they're adorable. Basically, as far as young children are concerned, the promise of future reward doesn't seem quite enough to make it worth the sacrifice right this moment. But hey, they're just kids. Us adults are way better at making logical choices and taking future consequences into account, aren't we? Well, the future is not very salient. So children are terribly present biased, and as we grow up, we get better at it, but the same idea still holds. That's Richard Thaler, Professor of Behavioural Science and Economics at the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago. You know, would you rather have $100 today or $110 in a week? And many people will say they'll take the 100 today. Uh, but if you ask them, 
whether they'd rather have $100 in a year or 110 in a year and a week, uh, they'll all be happy to wait the extra week. It's illogical, but it's quite subtle. I don't suppose it would be that easy to demonstrate with a rational, intelligent person. I decided to go find one, just to check. Enter my friend Phil, a chemistry PhD student. OK, Phil, um, hypothetical game. If I were to offer you some money in a year's time, I'll give you either 100 quid... OK. ..or you can toss a coin, and if you win, you'll get 200 quid, but if you lose, you get nothing. What would you choose? Ooh. I mean, it's money that I don't have, so I feel like if I lost the coin toss, then I wouldn't be losing anything, so I'd probably take the coin toss. Take the coin toss? Yeah. What if it was right now? Ooh. That's a lot more real now. <laughs> yeah, no, maybe I'd just take the 100 quid. <laughs> it's not very logical, is it? No, not really. <laughs> that example is from a real study, and as well as being about our impatience in the present, Richard Thaler says it's also about how we perceive our future. We think we'll have more willpower. We think we'll abide by all our New Year's resolutions. And we don't. But does it matter for the really important things? Surely there we're the picture of rationality and sacrifice for future happiness. Let's use my friend Phil as an example again. What do you do in your daily life that isn't just, like, for the satisfaction in the moment? I mean, doing my PhD. That's quite a sacrifice. Because yeah. I sacrifice my happiness and my soul so that I can get a PhD, which God knows whether it maybe will or might not benefit me in the future. A wise and logical choice for Phil there. He hopes that when he becomes Dr Phil, he might have a better chance of getting a job. But that's still only looking a few years into the future. When it comes to longer-term planning, we're often not quite as motivated. The further away something seems, the less we pay attention to it. Take retirement. I haven't put a lot of thought into my pension, or how to get the best deal for future me, and I'm not alone. In the US, maybe 40% of workers don't have a retirement plan at the place they work. That's Richard Thaler again. And being an economist as well as a behavioural scientist, he thought he had a solution to the problem of people not saving enough. He called it Save More Tomorrow. The idea is you present people the option to increase their saving rate, say, once a year, every time they get a raise, and to make that keep happening until they say stop. So if you start out saving 3% of your income and you say, okay, how about 4% next year? Fine. And, you know, then in six more years, you'll be saving 10% and you'll be on your way to a reasonable retirement. Richard's idea was to help people overcome their cognitive biases using those very same cognitive biases. So the three biases that we're worried about is that people don't care very much about the future, that they're loss averse, so they don't want they think they can't afford to have their income go down right now, and uh, inertia that they don't get around to saving things. So those are also the ingredients we built into the plan to make sure that it works. So we start increases in the future, and that seems far away, and we think we'll have more self-control then and more money, so that's fine. Uh, we link it to raises to eliminate the loss aversion, and we use inertia to help us by keeping the increases going until somebody says stop. 
It sounds like it makes sense, but it took a while to convince people. The initial reaction to that was skepticism until we finally got one company to do it and we tripled saving rates in less than three years and then people said, oh, that works. And now there are millions of people enrolled in some version of this plan in the US. It's quite hopeful to think that, despite our logical failings, we can at least be nudged into doing the right thing. But first, we need to recognise our natural flaws. And this doesn't just apply to helping our future selves, but future generations as well. These biases can be enormously important, especially if we talk about issues like climate change, which is all about the future. The catastrophic scenarios are 20 or 50 years down the road, and that seems far off and abstract. And if we don't pay enough attention to things because they're far off and abstract, then we will have a catastrophe. Thank you to Sharmini Bandel for that report. Only two presenters left, and the first may be familiar to regular NPR listeners. Jeff Brumfield is now an editor at NPR but was previously at Nature and contributed regularly to the podcast for several years from its inception. When I contacted him for his favourite piece, he told me that he knew just the one, and he did not disappoint. So one of the stories that has really stuck with me uh, was was published almost a decade ago, and I remember the press release uh, for Nature that week came out, and we were looking through it, and there was this paper title at the bottom uh, that... that, uh, it didn't have any sort of press material associated with it. It simply said, ACOEL development indicates the independent evolution of the bilaterian mouth and anus. And so I called the researcher, and I had the most fascinating conversation uh, I never expected to have about where anuses come from. Um, it's an important question in evolution that, that I had simply never thought of, and I just absolutely loved it. Now, I've got to be honest, I have not put a lot of thought into the origin of the anus. But evolutionary biologists have, and they've come up with a theory about it. They believe that the anus and the mouth started out as one, and over time separated into a front and a rear hole. But as it turns out, that theory is probably wrong. Andreas Heinel of the University of Hawaii has been doing some genetic tests on acela, simple flatworms with only a mouth, and other bilateria, animals with mouths and anuses. His work promises to turn the theory of the anus's origins on its head. Try not to giggle, here's Andreas. There have been old hypotheses about how the mouth and the anus of bilaterians, uh, these are these animals which have a left and right side of the body, like uh, us humans, but also flies, how these two openings have been evolved. And there always has been the hypothesis that they evolved simultaneously from one um, opening during the embryogenesis, but I have looked at the old literature and found that uh, they, there's no animal today which develops in this direction. So there must be a different solution for evolving this. You, you were looking at this flatworm, and I understand you, you sort of did some genetic work looking at, at the genes expressed in the mouth and the anus. Is that right? Yeah. So we looked at genes which are expressed in the bilaterian mouth in this flatworm. And we found that these genes are expressed in this mouth. But furthermore, we were surprised by the finding that in the posterior end, 
we found genes which are expressed in the anus. And this was pretty surprising. And I thought, so what does it mean when you have a worm which has no anus, but in this posterior tip of this animal, there are genes expressed which are expressed in some bilaterian hindguts. So I looked a little bit more carefully at the anatomy of these acial flatworm and found that there is indeed an opening, which is not the anus. It's the male gonopore, the gonoduct, where the sperm is released in which these genes are expressed. So you're saying basically that the anus evolved from sexual organs? Yes, through a connection of the gut to this duct. And if you think about many animals have indeed a so-called cloaca, where you have a connection of a duct where the gametes are released and the digestive system. What would be the advantage of hooking the two up together? Why would animals do that? So we have to think as our ancestor to be a very small worm, which lives probably between the sand grains in the ocean. But when animal lineages increased in body size, like we, for example, and they elongated as well their body, and this increased energetic needs, and a long blind gut would have made sorting food and waste through a single opening inefficient. So they needed to evolve an anus. You're saying that the anus is just something you need if you get above a certain size. You've got to have... Right. Do you find that, that you're the, the butt of a bunch of jokes from other researchers for your line of work? Uh, not yet. They only say, like, for, when I give a presentation, they say that they never heard a presentation in which so often the word anus falls. But this might be the same for this interview. Yeah, no, I don't think we'll, we'll get the word anus on the podcast this much before or after. So what comes next for you, Andreas? Of course, I continue to uh, look at these worms, and now I'm investigating the nervous system. And this will also give uh, interesting insight into brain evolution and nerve cord evolution. And uh, so then there will be less anus, but more nerves. That report was from Jeff Bromfield. Finally, for this special compilation episode, I'd like to play you my personal favourite. Regular listeners may have inferred that I have a particular interest in climate change. My Twitter handle is at climateadam, after all. But I find that often when we talk about climate change, it can seem distant and all too disconnected from human impacts. In this piece, which looks at climate migration, I learned about the very direct ways that changes to the world's climate are affecting people's lives today. Shedding a light on these changes, as well as the gaps between our scientific understanding and our politics, made this a deeply affecting piece for me. Robin Bronan is a human rights lawyer in Alaska in the US. Among the groups she's been working with are three entire villages who've been struggling with an extraordinary problem. There are three Alaska Native communities that have been trying to relocate their entire community for, I would say, the last two decades. And these villages have good reason to have been trying to relocate for so long. Climate change. They're located on the Alaskan coastline, where Arctic sea ice serves as a natural buffer from extreme storms. The climate so far north has always been harsh, 
But as temperatures rise and sea ice retreats, conditions are becoming unlivable. All of these communities are remote indigenous communities without road access. And we get hurricane-strength storms that come in, and so there are no evacuation routes. And so these indigenous groups have been left with no option but to relocate. Despite years of hard-fought battles from the communities and from Robin, they found themselves stuck. These communities that have limited financial resources have done everything possible. They've testified in front of Congress, they've had multiple conversations with the White House, and still none of them have relocated. It's excruciating. I mean, it's excruciating for me and I don't live in any of those places. And honestly, it makes me want to cry. Robin's frustration isn't directed at any one individual or group but it's systems of government that haven't yet learnt how to deal with the realities of climate migration. Part of the challenge and the reason why none of these communities have been able to relocate is because we have no governance framework in the United States or anywhere in the world to facilitate a community-wide relocation. The policy framework to deal with these situations may still be evolving. But geographer Jessica Marta Kenyon explains that the research community has been discussing climate migration almost as long as it's been discussing climate change. The first IPCC report came out, I think, in 1990 and argued that climate displacement, climate migration would be one of the biggest effects of climate change. And climate migration could affect vast numbers of people. So it's difficult to quantify. You know, the estimates range between 100 and 300 million people. Hundreds of millions migrating because of climate change. But not all climate migrations are the same. People can be forced from their homes by a sudden flood or the gradual rise of the oceans. And these subtleties can affect how people move and how decision makers need to respond. Here's Coco Warner, who works on climate impacts, risks and vulnerabilities at the UN Climate Secretariat. People move if they aren't safe. So, for example, climate stressors like floods. And because people's livelihoods are in those areas, they try and go back. The other pattern that we see is when climate stressors make it hard for people to continue their livelihoods. Consider sea level rise and saltwater intrusion. And those patterns are more nuanced. You have people moving temporarily, seasonally. Um, But generally, what people are after is stable incomes and food security. These are the kinds of dilemmas and questions that I'm hoping that a partnership between science and decision makers can start um, grappling with. But while progress is being made, decision-makers are still dealing with frameworks from another era. One of the challenges that we find is a lot of our institutions that manage national borders, that manage humanitarian affairs, and the movement of people were created in a specific time period in the 20th century, particularly following World War II. The context in the 20th, 21st century has changed so significantly that those institutions are grappling and and struggling to meet the current realities. 
This struggle translates to real problems for people who are forced to move due to climate change. Because refugee status is only applied to people fleeing persecution, legally there's no such thing as a climate refugee. In 2015, a man from the low-lying island nation Kiribati put these legal frameworks to the test. He was seeking asylum in New Zealand on the basis that rising seas would one day make it impossible for him to stay in his home country. In order to, to say, OK, the, the human rights are threatened, the court needed to, to establish whether or not there was an imminent threat. The climate modelling is done in a way that it, it gave estimates out towards mid-century, which wasn't considered by the court as an imminent threat. And so the judge had to turn down the case. The case failed in part because of the gaps between the existing scientific literature and the current policy frameworks. There's no doubt that both the scientific and political issues surrounding climate migration are complex. But for Robin Bronan, there's huge urgency to overcome these kinds of problems. The longer that we wait to talk about these really difficult issues, the harder it's going to be to make sure that people's human rights are protected because I personally feel morally responsible for the fact that these communities are being forced to relocate because we have not been able to curb our greenhouse gas emissions. That is sadly it for this special compilation episode. But a huge thanks to all the reporters, and researchers of course, who have made the last 500 episodes of the Nature Podcast possible. We'd love to know what your personal favourite podcast pieces are, whether you're a newbie or a veteran of the Nature Podcast. Let us know by email, podcast at nature.com, or Twitter at Nature Podcast. And if you'd like to help The Nature Podcast grow and reach even more science-hungry ears, then a review on iTunes or your favourite podcasting app would be the perfect birthday present. Until next time, I'm Adam Levy. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.